here. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We just prayed and now we're going to study the book of Matthew. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're here, there are Bibles on the back table if you don't have one. But we are in Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, considered to be the greatest sermon or speech ever given. And that's even um, <clears throat> true for some uh, unbelieving um People have said the same thing. So Matthew chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes, and um, there's a large, large crowd that's, that is following Jesus at this point. And so I'm just going to read uh, verses 3 to uh, 11, uh, which is about where we left off. Uh, before we begin, just so I know that you're awake, Say amen. amen. Okay, very good. Those of you on Zoom, I see an amen sign already and thumbs up. Awesome. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is Jesus talking. These are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We said that's poor in spirit, meaning they know that they are spiritually bankrupt, poor, and they need help. They can't live up to God's standard. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They're mourning over their broken spiritual condition. That's why they're mourning over their sin. Those are the ones who are blessed. They're going to be able to hear Jesus and receive him. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We said that meek is not a wimp or just someone that's gentle. It's the best way to put it is strength under control. Like a wild horse that's no good to anybody, when that horse has been broken, he can be useful to people herding cattle or transportation or being ridden or whatever. Um, God makes people meek, and there's a progression here. Those that are poor in spirit mourn over their sin. They are therefore very meek because they become under Christ's control and they are gentle. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Spiritual food, that's what they want the most. Those that do that will be filled. God will fill them. Yet people in the world hunger and thirst for all kinds of things besides righteousness. It's not on many people's top 10 list of what they're wanting. But this is someone that wants to be right with God. Bless, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. No wonder they're merciful. They're, these people that are blessed are in that spiritual condition where they are asking God for mercy. They're shown mercy, and they show mercy to others as well. Blessed, verse 8, are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We talked about Ezekiel, which says that God will give us a new heart and place his spirit inside of us. In fact, that's in the notes for tonight as well. That's the only way to get a pure heart. Um, is if God purifies your heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons and daughters of God. A peacemaker is one who brings two people together that are warring and makes peace. It's also a person that leads someone to Christ because if that person doesn't believe, they're at war with God whether they know it or not. So there's all different ways you can make peace. And blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called sons of God, the ultimate peacemaker is the Son of God, Jesus, who made peace on the earth through his death on the cross. Now that we have that, we can have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of or for righteousness' sake. In other words, if you're persecuted because you're a jerk or a thief, that's different. There's nothing about that here. But if you're persecuted because of obeying God's commands and being righteous, you are especially blessed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, verse 10 says. This is someone that has come to Jesus Christ. Uh, there was a kid at our school named Steve Murray. He's a pastor in San Diego now, has been for years. And he and one other gal at my high school are the reason I became a Christian. But he was one of the most popular kids and uh, was doing all the sinful things the rest of us were. And he came to Jesus, changed completely. And I saw people persecute him, make fun of him. One way, right, Steve? People would make fun of him. And I thought, doesn't seem right. It made me curious. And we spent a whole summer till two in the morning, some nights, just me asking questions and him answering them and looking at scripture and what have you. Anyway, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. If you're persecuted because of righteousness, you know what that means? It means your righteousness, your living God's way is so obvious, people are firing arrows at you, including Satan, right? Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So this is taking it a step further from just being persecuted to being in verbally insulted, not just physically. Some people are persecuted. Let's face it, 11 of the 12 apostles were killed. Talk about persecution for their faith. There's been all kinds of countries where they find out you're a Christian, a lot of Muslim countries. They will persecute you, sometimes take your Bible and uh, jail you even. So blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What's implied there, again, is that you are not a secret agent Christian. Just me and Jesus, I don't want anyone to know. That's a good way to not get persecuted and not be blessed. This is a person that's willing to tell people about Jesus. That's how they know to persecute you, right? So uh, insult, slander, Jesus was slandered and insulted constantly. In John 8, they called him a Samaritan which was a racial slur, they said he had a demon or a devil. They said he was mad or crazy. They mocked him on the cross and reviled him. They mocked him when they were whipping him. He did not mock or revile back. Great example. Um, so the contempt of the world isn't desirable necessarily, but if it's because of Jesus in your life, it's reason to rejoice. So let's read the rest of that passage, verse 12. Rejoice if that happens, people insulting you, persecuting you, falsely saying evil things. They'd said false charges against Jesus, didn't they? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about the last Old Testament prophet, which is, strangely, John the Baptist. How persecuted was he? They chopped his head off. There's something between the lines in verse 12, I don't want you, 11 and 12, I don't want you to miss. And that's in verse 11, it says, you're blessed when people insult, 
persecute or falsely charge you because of Jesus. Do you see that? Because of me, he says. That's the reason for the persecution. Now look at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad because if they're doing that to you because of Jesus, he claims to be the one who can give rewards in heaven. Did you see that? Because great is your reward in heaven. He's claiming to be, therefore, God. Because God's the only one that gives rewards in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, now he's claiming to be God because he's teaching a bunch of people. He's calling them, in a sense, you're going to be like the prophets who spoke for God. What he's kind of between the lines saying is that if you and I witness for Christ and we get persecuted, we're just like the prophets who spoke for God. We are speaking for God. Jesus Christ is God, therefore. So uh, that kind of conduct pleases God, but it displeases the world. Have you discovered that? There are occupations where if they find out you're a Christian, you get in big trouble. I told you maybe six months ago, a friend of mine has a, a friend of his, a woman, who works in costuming on Broadway and handing out the costumes and keeping track of all the costumes with set changes that are two minutes and 12 seconds. She's got to hand out 14 costumes. And this woman, if I remember the story correctly, someone was transsexual in the cast and did not want to be referred to, even though it was a woman, as she or her. And there was a mix-up with the costume and the, the, the head person said, what happened to that costume? And she said, I gave it to her. That caused her to go before a board to be reviewed to look like she was going to lose her job and have to move. And she had everybody praying. We prayed and she kept her job. But Hollywood, Broadway, the entertainment industry, government to a great extent, hates the Lord Jesus and hates Christians. So um, before we move on, I want to say that we're, we're still in the Beatitudes, but we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And so far, and all the way through chapter 5 and 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you can read it over and over and over and over. And you know what isn't here? The gospel. There's no, nothing here about faith in Jesus. Nothing here about his dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead. It's not here. Resurrection, it's not here. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. He will predict that later to his smaller band of apostles. But we said last week, who is this for? There are people who say, I don't go to church. I'm not a Christian. I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. And it's true. It is an extremely high moral standard. But anybody that says to you that they live by the Sermon on the Mount is lying. It's impossible. Verse 48 of this chapter, Jesus says, be perfect. And then just when you think, well, he must mean do the best you can, he follows that up with just as your heavenly father is perfect. Can't be done. The Sermon on the Mount is a very high standard. So we're going to ask the question, does it apply to Christians now that we have a savior? But there's something else going on. We hinted at it last week, and that's this. He's preaching this sermon 
to Jews who believe they can be saved by keeping the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the other laws in the Old Testament. And if you mess up, you've sacrificed a lamb on Passover and you're good to go for another year. And that's how you get to heaven. So this is revolutionary that he's showing them you can't live up to God's standard. You need a savior. That's why he starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who are really going to hear this sermon who aren't saved, Jews, are the ones who hear it and say, oh, I can't live up to the standard. I'm realizing how bankrupt I am spiritually. Then they're ready to receive a savior. Till then, it'll never, uh, it'll never happen. The other thing this sermon is, is contrasting fake from real righteousness. There's a way to act all righteous and holy and be a phony inside. God looks on the heart, right? Not the exterior. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Judaism, of, of the Jewish faith, were for the most part a bunch of phonies who went through the motions and thought that all that exterior could save them. Jesus calls them whitewashed graves, sepulchers. Inside, there's dead men's bones inside of you. So that's what's going on. I just wanted to clarify that. Okay, we talked about that, didn't we? Yes. Okay, verse 13. Now, this part is called the similitudes, meaning some things that are like things, if you will. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So it's a strange thing to say to somebody, you're salt. So we have to ask ourselves, why did he pick this metaphor? What is it about salt? The first thing you and I think about in the 21st century is salt makes food tastes good, right? And they did use it for that purpose. That's not what he's going for primarily, but we'll talk about that. But in an age where we have refrigerators and freezers and sealed packaging on Oreos back there, we don't need salt as a preservative. And that's what it was. They would pack meat or other things in it and it would preserve whatever it was. It would, listen, stop or slow down the decay, right? Let's, if we leave a piece of meat out on a table for a month and the other meat is, somebody's going, mm, and, 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 we leave, and the other meat we pack in salt, the meat in salt will be much more preserved. So he's saying that we can have a preserving influence on the people around us by the way we live, by the way we share the gospel. Salt was also incredibly valuable. Sometimes Roman soldiers were paid in salt, and they weren't disappointed. Salt was a valuable commodity for that reason. Also, the, the uh, spice used on food and what have you. So, um, by the way, in the Greek, it's you are the salt of the earth, emphatic, Okay. So it's a valued commodity. It's a preserving influence to slow down rot or decay, adds flavor to a bland existence. 
Um, but it makes earth a more pure and palatable place. And we, notice, aren't one of the types of salt. We are the salt. Not the Muslims, not the Hindus, not the atheists, not the Mormons, not the Buddhists. We are the salt. So he talks about salt losing its saltiness. He's not talking about the fact that salt can decay and lose its saltiness because guess what? It can't. So what does he mean here? Most of the salt in the Dead Sea was so valuable they would mix it with other stuff, gypsum and other minerals, so you'd get more and be able to sell more of it. But once you did that, it made the salt lose its saltiness. It didn't decay. It didn't stop decay as well. It didn't make the ta food taste better. It kind of ruined the salt. So go back and read it again. If the salt loses its saltiness, he's talking about us. So the question is, how do you lose your saltiness? We'll come back to that. How can it be made salty? Again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is it can't once it's been mixed with that stuff. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What he's talking about is that kind of lesser salt that was all mixed together with other stuff was still useful, kind of. They would throw it on roadways and walkways because it would kill vegetation. How does a Christian lose its saltiness? Okay, number one, how am I going to be salty? Number one, different. Number two, stopping the decay of the world around you by not being one of the decayers or sinners. Number two, being different. Salt is different from the meat that it's on or the vegetables or whatever else. It's very different. Another good thing, just a little bit of salt goes a long way. Um, in my, if anyone from my family was here, they would tell you that this story is true. No one loved salt more as a kid than me. There are home movies of our family on the beach, Salisbury Beach in Massachusetts, where I'm, I don't even know, a year and a half on the beach eating salt. And my mother's slapping my hand and cleaning my mouth because it was the sand, I mean, was so salty. Anyway, uh, just thought I'd throw that in at no extra charge. Um, yes, I know that's a little on the weird side. We lose our saltiness by becoming more like the rot and decay of the world that we're around. It can't happen with real salt. Salt stays salt around some meat that's starting to rot. But we can become so much like the world that there's no distinction. Churches that do that, by the way, that their motto is, look, come to our church. We're just like the world. We've got an open bar over here. We've got dancing girls on Thursday night. It's, but we preach Jesus. No, you don't. That's the lack of saltiness. They're not different. They're the same, aren't they? So um, an interesting story from Genesis. Does anybody remember the story of Abraham? negotiating, it's kind of humorous, with God about Sodom. I'm going to destroy Sodom. Abraham says, oi. I mean, that's not in the Bible, but I'm throwing that in. What if there was 50 righteous people in that huge city 
very small percentage. Just a 50 people, just a little bit of salt. Would you still destroy it? And God says, no. If there was 50 righteous people out of several hundred thousand at least, I wouldn't destroy it. So then Abraham, remember, says, about 40. Just like a good Jewish businessman, he's negotiating. About 30. He gets down to 10. Would you destroy Sodom if I could find 10 righteous people? And God says, amazingly, no. I wouldn't destroy it. As evil as that city is, just that little bit of salt gives that city hope. Now, the sad thing is, how bad was Sodom? There wasn't even 10 righteous people there. So the city gets destroyed. You know the story. That's encouraging to me because that means very little can make a huge difference. Sometimes revivals have started with just a handful of people that are praying and sharing the word and what have you. So don't minimize what God can do. Um, let's move on to verse 14. Besides salt, you're something else. You are, verse 14, the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Okay, so at first glance, if you've read other parts of the Bible, it's a little uncomfortable. And the reason is because Jesus in John 8 and in John 9 says he is the light of the world. I'm comfortable with that, right? Darkness, remember, is not a thing. What do you mean? I mean, darkness is the absence of something. That's all it is. It's the absence of light right? It's not a thing in and of itself. Light is a thing. First thing I wanted to say, Jesus being the light of the world makes me very comfortable. He illuminates the world. He shows people reality. If we turned every light off in this place, well, it's light outside, but at midnight, you couldn't see anything. So you wouldn't know our condition. Is the room dirty? Is my face dirty? Without light, you wouldn't know. With the light on, it reveals things as they are. It shows reality. He is the light of the world. Light is also very comforting. If you were a little kid and you were afraid in the dark, somebody flicked on the light, you were instantly, Because monsters, everyone knows monsters can't live where it's light, right? They live under your bed and they hide in the darkness. Anyway, Jesus is the light of the world. That's not what it says here. It's still true that he is the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. Now listen, this is derived light. What do you mean? It's reflected light. You ever look up at the moon? The moon has no light of its own. It reflects the light of the sun. We're supposed to reflect the light of the S-O-N, sun. So, um, an instrument to illuminate the world. That's what he's saying that we are. But you remember the little kid song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Don't hide it. Uh, let it shine. So we're supposed to illuminate the world spiritually with our very presence. The fact is many people are very timid and quiet, I think, especially now. 
because the media and social media and society as a whole has taught us, shut up about your Christianity. 115 years or so ago in America, kids in school, and maybe more recently, but I know for sure early 1900s, kids in school learned to write by public school, by practicing copying right out of the Bible in public school. Try that now. The, the word Jesus, God, Bible, those words have become like four-letter words in school. You can say transgender, you can say the F word, you can, it's strange. Uh, my teenaged grandkids confirm for me that you can say the F word in school and you don't get in trouble. Man, not when I was a kid. Anyway, in the 1930s, it was very different. Okay, so... Uh, you are the light of the world, ner olam. That phrase meant light of the world. And that phrase, listen to this, was reserved in that culture. You would not say it about anybody unless they were a very well-known rabbi, teacher of God's word. He's a light of the world, that guy. He's an amazing rabbi. He's saying to the average people listening to him on a hillside, by the Sea of Galilee, you are the light of the world. That's an amazing, amazing thing. The purpose of light is for it to be seen, right? A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The point is, it's, we should be prominent about our Christianity and sharing it. How else are you going to share your light unless people know that you're a Christian? I believe that in a sense, what I'm about to say is true, and then it's also can be a cop-out. Here it comes. You ready? Say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Okay. I've heard people say, well, I witness every day. I just don't use words. I just let my lifestyle show. You know what? There's some truth to that. Actions speak louder than words. I've heard all that. But there comes a time when you have to tell people. The reason I did that and reported that mistake honestly is because I'm a Christian and I have a high standard from God and it's his glory, not mine. That's why I did it. If you go to a store, nobody uses cash anymore, but if you do and you give somebody a $50 bill and they, or a $10 bill, I should say, and they start counting change out like you gave 100 and you're going, this is my lucky day, that's when you immediately should say, well, well you're giving me too much change. I'm a Christian. That's why I have to be honest and tell you I might have kept the money before I knew the Lord. That's a good little way to let your light shine, one of a hundred ways you could. Um, Who's salty? Who's light? The ones that are poor in spirit, who've come to Jesus, who mourn over their sin. They're meek. They are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're different. Light is very different than darkness. What light, us being the light of the world, implies is, listen, that the world must be what? A really dark place, right? Because if it was fully lit and you lit a light, it wouldn't be much good. A light is good when everything, when the power goes off, right? In that first minute. So 
Light in the Bible is a symbolic word for purity, truth, knowledge, revelation, even God's presence. The Old Testament says that God himself clothes himself in light. Um, let's see. The Old Testament, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, talks about the Messiah as the true light of the world. We reflect his light to the world around us. Um, do you remember when Moses met with God? Then he leaves God and he comes down the mountain and hangs out with the people and doesn't know that he's glowing. Do you remember that? It's like a nuclear accident, right? Except it's not. He's glowing and he doesn't know. And they tell him, well, you know, your face is glowing. And that's, we ought to be glowing, not literally, with the gospel, right? Now Moses blows it because he starts to lose the glow, do you remember? And kind of hides it because he doesn't want people to know. It's fading. It was a temporary kind of a glow. Um, but somebody's got to see it. There's no room in the Bible for living in a Christian commune, just us four and no more. Shut the door. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of it, but sharing our light with the people that actually need it. Very sadly, I will tell you, most Christians you talk to and you say, how many non-Christian friends do you have? They will say maybe one, two, three, very few. I hang out with everybody in my church. Listen, that's great. Fellowship is so great. We need to meet the people across the street that are atheists or next door or whatever the case may be. Um, how will they know that you're light if you don't share it? Very important. It's got to be vocal. Um, look at verse 16 with me now. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Did you notice your, your, your? Let's look at that verse 16. He's saying here, letting your light shine before others. Implied there is, and the word others is, people that don't have the light, right? They're in darkness. They don't know it, but they are. Let it shine before others, in such a way, I'm going to paraphrase here, listen, that they may see your what? Good deeds, your good works, that they will see that the light isn't just verbal, it's good deeds, it's things you do, whether it's generosity or it's forgiveness. Let's face it, every good deed, if you want a list of what could be the good deeds that I could do that people would see and go, boy, that's really different. The answer is, just look at everything, make a list of everything God gave you vertically. Well, he gave me forgiveness. Well, then be forgiving to others when they don't deserve it, because you didn't. God gave me love, be loving to others. God gave me a spiritual gift that I totally don't deserve. Then give away that gift and give away what he's given you financially or whatever in such a way you're so generous like he is, so loving, so forgiving, so merciful, so kind that it's a reflection. They'll see your good deeds. Now here comes the hard part and glorify you for what a great guy you are. Is that what it says? It's so tempting to get this and go, thank you. I am pretty good. Yeah. Wrong. God's in heaven going, oh boy, I got to work on Joe more. 
show your good deeds. Let your light shine that they see your good deeds and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. Which means you got to let them know that's the reason for the good deeds. That We have a saying in our house. I'm sure you have it as well. Somebody says something and somebody else says that's totally a God thing. Meaning he's the source. He's the beginning and the end of that whole thing. It's really great that you teach this Bible study, Joe. It, believe me, it's a total God thing. It is not me at all. And, and that's something that when it's, he's working in you, you know it. But it's tempting to let it go to your head and take the credit. This person that's letting their light shine is giving all the credit where? They're glorifying who? His Father in heaven, which is God. Uh, there goes somebody's cell phone, which means I said one thing right so far. Um, let's see. This is the meaning of life, to glorify God with your time, talent, treasure. Let, what, let's see. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of it. You mean, what if I weed whack for a living? Do it to the glory of God. Do the best job you can so that people say, you know, we've had a bunch of people weed whack this property. No one's ever done it as good as you have. And you say, I thank God that he's allowed me to do this. I want to do the best job I can because I work for a boss in heaven. Uh, just one way to put it. Make a donation to the church instead of paying me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, listen to Jesus. My glorified I'm sorry, my father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my prove prove to be my disciples. First Corinthians 6:20. You're bought with a price. Listen, he bought you on the cross. He owns you. Listen to the natural outpouring of that. First Corinthians 6:20, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Um, I have a friend who is very ill and he is so thankful for the areas that he's not hurting in. Instead of dwelling on the, this is a big bummer, my health, I'm thankful I can still, we had this talk yesterday. I'm thankful I can see, thankful I can hear, thankful I can walk, thankful I can use my hands. All these things, it's all giving glory to God. That kind of thing is contagious. Verse, let's see, back to 16. Let the light shine before others. They see your good deeds, they glorify your Father in heaven. Verse 17 is a beginning of a new long discussion about the law. Okay, so we need to find, what do you mean by the law? The Jews referred to the first five books of the Bible as the law. They would call the Bible or all of Judaism, Old Testament, they would call it the law and the prophets. Okay, so when you hear him talk about the law, he means the whole Old Testament. Because they're wondering, this guy's doing miracles. He's got a huge following. He's preaching incredible wisdom. The last part of the Sermon on the Mount says the people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one with authority, not like the Jewish leaders. So when you hear the law, when he talks about the law, because it's going to keep going, 
remember two things. It means the Old Testament and the law was given by God. The Jews knew that. Okay? So watch what appears to be, and it isn't, total arrogance. For him to say, you've heard it said in the law, this, this, and this, but I say to you, now see, if that was me, I would hope that you would all walk out, because who am I, right? He has the audacity, not really because he is God, to say, let me tell you what I, God, really meant by that. He's going to redefine all kinds of obedience to the law as being a lot deeper than just on the outside. He's showing them they need a savior. He's showing them their vacuum cleaner doesn't clean that well. You need to buy this vacuum cleaner that I'm selling, which cleans way better. Verse 17, do not come, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's saying, this is an audacious claim. I have come to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Remember, the law and the prophets is the whole Old Testament. It's the way they referred to their Bible. Genesis to Malachi. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, because there were starting to be rumors, is this a new religion, or is he a Jewish prophet? Is he the Jewish Messiah? It seemed he was changing Judaism so much. Okay, so... He tells them, I'm not here to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. I want to read this little paragraph, then we'll talk about this one verse at a time. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, verily, verily, I say unto you, whenever Jesus says that, it means, listen up, this is really important. Until heaven and earth disappear, when is that? End of the world. Genesis, uh, Revelation 21, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen, yacht or tittle in uh, transliterated but Hebrew, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay, let's just talk about that. He's saying, I'm not here to abolish the law. The law is God's word. I'm just here to fulfill it. In fact, he, Jesus has such a high view of Scripture that he says it's not the message only in each paragraph. It's not the book. It's not the sentence. It's not even the word. It is all those things. But he says not even the smallest stroke of a pen of each letter. They're all important. Jesus believes that the Bible is absolutely all of it inspired, listen, and inerrant, meaning no mistakes. Remember that the Bible's not a smorgasbord. You can't go, I like that, but I know I don't like these next two chapters. I'm skipping that. It's not a smorgasbord. Okay, what's a yacht or a tittle or the least stroke of a pen, the smallest letter? Yacht. Yod, Y-O-D-T, I think it is in Hebrew. It's the smallest letter in Hebrew, okay? He's saying the smallest letter, or a tittle was like a T, a, a lowercase T in English, the little 
thing that crosses it. You with me? Or like an apostrophe. Down to that minute part of each word, he's saying, none of that's going to pass away until everything's fulfilled. Elsewhere, he says, the scripture, listen to this, not might be, could be, should be, the scripture must be fulfilled. Do you know why? Because God wrote it and he's sovereign. He's going to make every single thing happen. But here's the thing I want to camp on for a little while. I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So the question is, how does he, this guy from Nazareth, a carpenter, uneducated in the rabbi schools, how is he going to one human being fulfill? And he doesn't mean most of it. He means every single thing in one way or another in the Old Testament points to him. It's an unbelievably arrogant and audacious, except it's not because it's true. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, so four books, well, three books to the left, through Mark, through Luke, and then John chapter 5, and we want verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. He says to the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, okay, the Pharisees, who studied the word, they memorized portions of this Old Testament, he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Did you hear that? These, in Greek, not scriptures is implied, it's not there. He's saying, you know the whole Old Testament that you guys study so hard? The whole thing is about me. Can you imagine they're just being upset with him? Um, oh, I can't resist going to Luke chapter 24. Go to Luke 24 with me. I'm, I'm winging it here, so you got to give me a second. I hope I can find what I want. Jesus is uh, risen from the dead. Two of the disciples, uh, it's John, Luke 24, right around verse 13. Two of the disciples are headed away. They're very bummed out. They thought he was the Messiah. He's dead now. They don't know he's risen. Okay? Verse 14, uh, Luke 24, 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. All of a sudden, this is a comical scene. Jesus shows up, pops in, okay, supernaturally, and starts walking with them, and they don't recognize him. Their eyes, 16, were kept from recognizing him. So he asks them, and this is also humorous because he knows. What are you guys talking about? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor in Jerusalem? You don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. They're telling Jesus about Jesus. I love it. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. We're very bummed out. I know it doesn't say that, but they are. Um, in, in addition, some of the women 
amazed us. They went to the tomb. They didn't find his body. They said they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And, and he said to them, verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. Look, all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Here it comes, verse 27. This is the DVD I'm checking out when I get to heaven. I want to hear this Bible study. Verse 27 of Luke 24. And beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, and all the prophets. Did you see that? All the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You say, what could he possibly have said? Okay, number one, Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law. We're going to talk about the ceremonial law, the moral law, and then the civil law. There's three parts to the law. Briefly, ceremonial law is the all the ways that God tells them they are to worship, foods that they can and can't eat, clothing they can and can't wear, the ways to wash, all of that stuff. He fulfills all the sacrifice stuff, that's ceremonial law. He fulfills it all. Then there's the civil law, which are the punishments that if I accidentally kill his sheep, this is the restitution I have to make to him. Then there's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, etc. He fulfills it all. Watch. And this is a very brief way of saying it. Number one, what's in the Old Testament? Adam. He's called the second Adam, right? Adam fails in a garden regarding a test, regarding a commandment, regarding a tree. Jesus succeeds in a garden, Gethsemane, regarding a command to go to the cross, which is a tree, First Peter, and succeeds. And he survives temptation from Satan, chapter 4 of this book, remember? He's the second Adam. He's like Moses in that he's a prophet. He gives a new covenant. He gives commandments. He does miracles. Moses spoke face-to-face -face with God and was transfigured on a mountain. So was Jesus. Moses prayed for the people of Israel. So did Jesus. The bronze serpent on a pole. Do you remember that in the book of Numbers? Jesus in John says, yeah, that was a picture of me. The bronze serpent on the pole saved people from the poisonous bite of the serpent or snake. Same thing with Jesus, up on a pole, like on a cross. Jesus um, is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sin, sinless, perfect, clean lamb whose blood protects. Jesus is the ark of Jonah, uh, of, sorry, of Noah, who brings us safely to a new world through the water baptism. He's the ultimate Jonah, Matthew 12. He's the ultimate high priest and mediator. He's the ultimate rock in the wilderness when struck the rock produced living water. Do you remember that Old Testament? All, this is a small sample of all the ways God was hinting with little pieces of the puzzle. The Messiah that's coming is going to do all these things. He's the ultimate Melchizedek, Old Testament strange figure in Genesis. He's the ultimate suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He's Jacob's ladder. Do you remember that story in Genesis? Jacob sees in a dream a ladder or a stairway extending from heaven to earth. 
Jesus claims to be that ladder, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's the ultimate Isaac, the son who's innocent, Abraham is willing to sacrifice. Do you remember? He is the ultimate Joseph um, who saves his people. He's the true manna or bread that comes down from heaven. John chapter 6, he says so. He is our Sabbath rest. Um, he fulfills the civil law in that he bore the penalty for all those sins on the cross. Um, we better take our two-minute break right now and keep you awake. Remember, there's food back there, and it has to all go today. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. We'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. See you in a minute. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We are still in Matthew 5, probably will be for two months. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. He comes to fulfill them. What we didn't even talk about is the fact that there are over 320 Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah will be and what he'll do and where he'll be born and how he'll die, betrayed by a close friend. He fulfills a bunch of those. The Old Testament is the doorway into the new, which is why Christians study the Old Testament, don't we? In this church, we're going through the book of Genesis, which is a Jewish Old Testament book. But the, the New Testament is... Although concealed in the Old Testament, it is fulfilled in the New. So there, it is the same God. So we need to study both the Old Testament and the New. Uh, we already talked about that. So um, the ceremonial law has been wiped out. Remember, ceremonial law is what foods we can eat that you have to worship on on the Sabbath, that you have to celebrate Passover with a sacrifice all of that stuff. I want to show you that Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law, and that law is for Christians not applied. Turn in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. If you can't find it, that's okay, because we're only going to be here for a second. Colossians, after Philippians, and after Galatians, Colossians chapter 2 is one of many places where you'll, you'll see this. Verse 16, Colossians 2, 16. The reason I'm mentioning this is I'm about to ask the question, well, wait a minute now. If you say the civil law he is not applicable because we are not in a theocracy where those penalties, we're in, in each country, whatever, you have to obey those laws. The ceremonial law I'm going to show you is out the window. But for us, because Jesus fulfills it. But the question is, what about the moral law? And the answer is, we're still under the moral law. It's still a sin to lie or commit adultery or commit murder. We're going to find out. The problem comes with one of the commandments. You mean one of the ten? Yes. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? Why aren't we obeying that one? It turns out nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament as commands for Christians. The one that isn't is the Sabbath. 
Colossians 2, verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Stop right there. The Jews, you can't have pork. You can't have a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. You can't even have beef, a, a meat product, with a dairy product, which means if you eat a burger, you can't have cheese on it or have a glass of milk with the burger. Okay, it's the reason I couldn't be a Jew. Cheeseburger, there it is. <laughs> Don't let anybody judge you, says Paul, about what you eat or drink. That stuff is out the window. You can eat pork now. You may not want to eat it for other reasons, but you can. Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration, religious festival is like Passover, once a year. Feast of Tabernacles. We see now Jesus is pictured in each one of those festivals, but don't let anybody judge you in terms of those things. You don't need to sacrifice a lamb on Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Got the picture? So in regard to what we eat or drink or an annual festival, you don't have to do that anymore. That's ceremonial law. Keep reading. Or a new moon celebration. That's once a month, not once a year in Judaism, certain things. Don't let anybody judge you about it. We're going to find out whether those things are solid or not in the next verse. Or a what? Sabbath day. Don't let anybody judge you. Oh, you guys, uh, there are some, not all, Seventh-day Adventists that believe that we who worship on Sunday have, wait for it, the mark of the beast because we worship on Sunday. Sorry, don't let anyone judge you with regard to a Sabbath day. Paul says in another book, one man uh, considers one day over another. The other man considers every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. You want to worship on Saturday? Go for it. You want to worship on Tuesday night? Eating snacks and Oreos? Go for it. You want to worship Sunday morning? Go for it. Why do Christians worship on Sunday morning? It's the day the Lord rose. In the Bible, in the early church, you know what they're doing? They're meeting on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day Jesus rose. Okay. Don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. What are those, Paul? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Pretty clear to me um, and to most Christians. Um, the, the Nehemiah 9.14 says the Sabbath was given to Israel as a sign. It's not given to Christians. Does the principle still apply? Yes. What's the principle? Don't work seven days a week. Don't do it. One day should be a day of rest unto the Lord. But in terms of the legal, the, remember a Sabbath for a Jew is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Um, okay, so Sabbath day. But the other nine commandments are repeated as commands in the New Testament. The moral law remains. As a matter of fact, James 2.10, turn there with me briefly. Again, we're only going to be here for a second. James chapter, chapter 2, 
verse 10. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A. James chapter 2, verse 10. In case there was anybody that didn't know they were poor in spirit, they need to read James 10. Because most people, uh, James 2.10, because most people think that God must grade on a curve, and if I'm pretty good, I'm in. James 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Did you hear that? Which means if you get a 99 out of 100 on the keeping of the law, but you blew it on one little thing, you know what that says? It says that the law is like a window. And everybody's window, listen, is broken. Now, you might break your window like this with a little hammer and a screwdriver, and it's just a little crack. And, but that window is just as broken as if I break mine with a baseball bat. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We need a savior. You break one command, you break the whole thing. Um, okay. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Zoom people, are you doing good? Okay. I see the thumbs up. Okay. Um, the whole Jesus is claiming in Matthew 5 uh, that he fulfills the whole Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. He's come in a very short lifetime to and death and resurrection to fulfill it all. It's astounding. For the Jews, it's no wonder a lot didn't believe in him. Some did. They couldn't deny the miracles, the wisdom. But he's claiming <clears throat> some pretty amazing things. As I said, he has a high view of Scripture, and you should too. Um, verse 19, <clears throat> therefore, um, back in Matthew 5, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's the context again? He's talking about the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Peter calls the writings of Paul Scripture. So he's talking about the whole Bible, and he's saying what I said earlier. It's not a smorgasbord. If you're going to read it, if you're going to believe it, if you're going to teach it, teach the whole thing or throw it out. The whole thing is his word, and every bit of it matters. Um, Joseph in Genesis, we talked about him earlier for a second. What happens to him? He's righteous. His brothers throw him in a pit, picturing Jesus being thrown in a grave, killed by his brothers, the Jews, right? Crucify him. Joseph provides bread for his people. I mean, you could go on and on. If you really learn how to read the Old Testament, Jesus is on every page somewhere. It's an astounding thing. Okay. Um, Romans 10.4, by the way, says, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. We're not saved by the law. All the law is is an x-ray that shows you here's the problem. It draws you to Christ for salvation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Verse 19. 
If you set aside one of the least of these commands and teach others, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's an interesting verse. This is someone who's teaching and they're making an error. I, as a teacher, am so thankful. It says, it does not say you'll be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. Did you see that? It says, I might be called the least for something I've taught, God forbid. I pray hard about this class uh, seven days a week, but it says if you're doing that, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, not excluded. But whoever practices and teaches these commands, notice you got to practice what you teach or preach, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's about knowing what the word says and doing it. Uh, we already talked about that. Verse 20. For I tell you that this, here is, if you're a Jew in the first century listening to Jesus, here comes the biggest shocker so far. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, goes beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Jewish leaders, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How many of you, I, I, I tried to think of a good analogy. I'm hoping this one works. By a show of hands, how many of you know who Michael Jordan, the basketball player, is? Can I see your hands? Pretty much everybody knows. You might disagree that we got a basketball fan here, my buddy Randy. Many people believe he's the greatest basketball player ever. Some would say LeBron James, Stephen Curry. There's other people, whatever. Michael Jordan. Imagine this is a basketball team, and I'm the coach, okay? And I'm saying to you people, if you want to make this team, you got to be better than Michael Jordan. All right, let's get started, right? Everybody would go, oh, well, forget it. The Jews thought the Pharisees and the scribes, the, their religious leaders, were the holiest of the holy. There was a saying among Jews that if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. They are so holy, those dudes. They just, they're so careful with everything. They are so pious in the way they act so much holier than all of you that they must be holier than us. And now he's saying, you know, the Michael Jordan of of uh, faith, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Read it again. Unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you're not going to go to heaven, which implies what? Neither are they, right? Because if you don't go, get higher than they are in the righteousness scale somehow, you'll never make it to heaven. Keep in mind, in this chapter, he's going to say, be perfect, which excludes who? Everybody, including Michael Jordan, right? Because even he wasn't the perfect basketball player. What's the point? He's saying, you don't get there by obeying the law, especially the way they do. They're a bunch of outward phonies. He's saying, your righteousness has to be perfect. Therefore, it has to be the kind of righteousness, a robe of righteousness that Jesus wears, takes off, and puts it on each one of you and I. It's an astounding thing. They had to be shocked by this. 
He's going to go on to say that they um, are a bunch of phonies, that they are all about the external, the way it looks externally, and you can't see their heart. He's going to tell you, I can, and they are wicked and rotten phonies. So again, he's selling vacuum cleaners. He's showing them, you need a savior. You don't imitate them. You'll never get there. The Pharisees were, he says to them in another place in Matthew, we'll get there, probably 2028 20, or something. He says to the, to the Jews, the, to the Pharisees, I mean, you tithe, give a tenth of, right? You're supposed to give a tenth of your income in Judaism. They would have little gardens of different mint and spices. They would be very careful to take, let's see, I have four plants, so let me take four, uh, one four, one tenth of the four plants and give that at the, that's my tie. They're so careful and they're a bunch of complete phonies. So again, he's showing them the only way is if God gives you a new heart, he puts his spirit in you. If you're going to wear somebody else's righteousness who fulfills the entire law. Back to the Jesus fulfills, I forgot to say. All those commands in the Old Testament, Jesus claims he's going to fulfill by living the perfect life and never sinning. That fulfills all the stuff about sin in the Old Testament. Okay. Christianity does not set the Old Testament law aside, but instead we do our best to keep it by his enabling power he forgives us of our sins and puts his spirit inside of us so that we are able to break the chain of addiction and sin and hatred and selfishness and greed and fill in the blank, whatever. I want you to notice that Jesus does not lower the requirement. He raises it. He raises the bar to where Michael Jordan says, I, I, I can't do that. They thought the Pharisees were it, and they were so wrong. All the law does is condemn us of sin and draw us to Jesus. We talked about that. Uh, Philippians 3, we need to go there now. You say, boy, a lot of detours. They keep you awake. That's why we do them. Galatians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Very quickly. I'll just read it. If you turn there, you get extra credit in heaven. No, I'm just kidding. Um, oh, hold on. No, not Philippians. Yes, Philippians 3. Sorry. Um, Paul's talking about himself. He was the Jew of Jews, memorized great portions of scripture. If uh, I'm in the middle of verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Gen Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, legalistic righteousness, faultless. Watch this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain and that I may gain 
Christ, to be found in him. Here it comes, verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that is the one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. It's a foreign righteousness. It's borrowed garments through faith. Okay, now that everybody's confused, let's keep rolling, shall we? Uh, verse 21. Now he's going to take six of the Ten Commandments that they're all familiar with. All the Jews could tell you the Ten Commandments. He's going to take six of them one at a time and raise the bar to the infinity place. Watch. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. By the way, whenever he says you have heard, or you have read, he's talking about the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the Jewish Bible. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Is that a Ten Commandment? Yes. By the way, the, the commandment in the Bible is not thou shalt not kill. It's murder, right? If it was kill and you stepped on a mouse accidentally or a ant, anything that you killed to eat, a chicken, that would be a, a crime in God's eyes. It is not. Murder, the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Murder. Ken, real loud, if you will. Many of the people were killed, including women and children, in the old Yes, they were told to kill women and children and everybody in, in, well, it's not murder because they weren't innocent. God told them to kill them because they were in their land and they were in almost always um, doing child sacrifice, doing abominable things that God said, he, who has the right, I want my people to carry out my justice on them. But it's not murder, the intentional killing of an innocent human being. By the way, the intentional killing of an innocent human being is abortion. The intentional, it's not an accident, killing was something alive that is now dead. Yes, of an innocent is the baby in the womb guilty of some crime I didn't know about. Intentional killing of an innocent, here comes the, the one they stick you on, human being. Oh, it's not a human being, it's in the womb. It can't live outside the womb, it would die if there wasn't somebody to take care of it. There's all kinds of people in hospitals and rest homes that would die if they didn't get oxygen and other care. What's a human being? 46 chromosomes, it's a human being. Okay. Is that the unforgivable sin? No. Like anything else, abortion, if you were a part of one and you've confessed it, God has forgiven you. Okay, you've, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. Anyone who murders is gonna get judged. Verse 22, but I tell you, stop right there. He's saying, you know, the Bible says, but I say, you see how that is unbelievably arrogant, except it's not because he's the one that wrote the Old Testament. 
He's not going to say it's not a sin to murder because that would contradict the Old Testament and you'd go, well, we got a problem here. He's going to show you what's really meant. But I say, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. He takes murder and says, it's not about the murder itself. It's about the seed of murder which is here, which is here. It's hatred. It's superior. I'm superior to someone so I can kill them. He takes it to such a level that, again, they ought to be saying, well, then everyone's guilty of murder then. To which he would say, in God's eyes, yes. Now, is it the same thing to call somebody a fool? We'll talk about what that means as it is to murder them. No, but it's the seed. It's where it starts. If I said to you, Ron and Sharon back there, I'm going to commission you. I want every oak tree removed from Madera County. Every single one. Listen, you have an unlimited budget. I'll get you 100,000 men from several different states to come help you. Your job is remove every single oak tree from Madeira County. You can have 20 years to do it if you want, but that's the job. So they go get all these guys and chainsaws and they cut all the trees down and they burn all the trees and they come to me and they go, okay, we're done. And I go, did you get the roots? And they go, what? Have you ever cut a tree down? And then here it comes again, starts you got to get the roots, Ron and Sharon. Okay, now they bring in the heavy machinery and the tractors and they hire Andrew here, who is an expert in that stuff. And they're digging up with thousands of men, every oak tree stump and every root. And they come to me four years later and they go, why are we coming to you? No, they come to me and they say, how do you have the authority to get rid of oak trees? And they go, we did it. We cut them all down. We burned the trees. Yes. And we dug up every root and burned those. We're done. And I say, did you get every potential oak tree? Some of you are saying it. I can see, read your lips. Did you get every acorn? <laughs> what? Well, come on. What happens if it rains and a little bit of dirt and mud slides over the acorn? And then what do you have? So now they're going to go back... Okay, you get the point, don't you? What's an acorn? It's the seed of an oak tree. If you're going to get rid of oak trees, if oak trees are bad, you've got to get rid of the acorns. If murder's bad, where does it start? It never starts with a knife or a club or a gun or a bomb. It starts here with hatred. There's people that blew up the World Trade Center. There was great hatred in that. But it didn't start with the bombs or a fuse or a detonator. It started long ago with hatred. Jesus gets to the heart of every single sin here on six of the commandments, and he's starting with murder. And I can guarantee you, you've heard me say this before, I can guarantee you that when he said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, people immediately went, you can skip down, we know. 
It's bad to murder. It's a sin. It's a major sin. By the way, the penalty was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life. If I murdered him, you know what they would do to me? Murder me. But he takes it to a whole new level, deeper to the heart. Not just the act, but the motive, the hatred. Um, and so uh, the, the Jewish uh, Pharisees said murder was a sin. But all the stuff he's mentioning was not. So he's saying, I say to you, if you're angry with a brother, by the way, some translations have without cause. Anybody have that in your translation? Those words are not in the Greek. It's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Well, everybody gets angry, Joe. Yes, I know, me included. What he's saying here is, better not hold on to that little acorn. Might grow into a big oak and get you into trouble. Have you ever hated anybody? You ever wished anybody was dead? Ouch. Don't do it. And if anyone says to a brother or sister, raka, this is an interesting word. It means good for nothing. It literally means empty head. You idiot. You airhead. You dummy. You'll be in danger of the fire of hell. I'm sorry, answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's he doing again? He's trying to show them, don't tell me you keep the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. That's already one. Everybody that was hearing him would have to say, ouch, I'm, I'm guilty here. I didn't know God was this strict. Listen, he's not strict. He's perfect. He, he has never sinned. He cannot sin. So Jesus takes the, the Ten Commandments and shows them for what they are. No wonder, now do you understand? Unless you're better than Michael Jordan, you can't be on the team. Unless your holiness is ex exceeding the Pharisees and the Sadducees, forget it. No wonder. He's going to show what hypocrites they are later. But for now, we'll move on and we have just a couple of minutes left. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Zoom, looking good. Okay. It's infinitely a higher, um, higher standard, a greater righteousness. Okay. Uh, let's see. We already talked about that. I'm just reading notes here. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and sin not. Jesus was angry at the temple, you remember? And pushed over the table, so he sinned. No, that was a righteous anger. God is angry with all sin. That's righteous anger. It's possible to be angry and not sin. The true meaning of the law goes into the heart, goes into the mind, goes into the motives, not just the act. Um, let's see. He's saying to them, your standard's too low. If you got hatred in your heart, uh, it's a sin. Therefore, verse 23, and we're just about out of time, if you're offering your gift at the altar, oh, that's important. 
Everyone would offer their gift at the brazen altar in the uh, outer court. That's worship. Yes, it is. To offer a gift is worship. That's important. And he says, if you're offering your gift and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. He's saying, before you come to me with your worship and your gifts, if you know so-and-so has something against you, is deeply hurt by something you did, is you fill in the blank. That becomes a priority over worship. That's astounding to me. Come on, God, does worship is more important. He says, no, don't worship me with dirty hands. Go take care of that issue. You go do it, not this. Well, if he comes to me, maybe I'll apologize. No, no, you make the effort. That's a priority over bringing your gift because I don't want your gift until you do that. It's an astounding thing. There you see, by the way, both uh, relationships, the, the horizontal, me with other people, you with other people, and the vertical, you with God. He says, if you've got people that are hurt by what you've done or ripped off or whatever, take care of that first. Don't bring your gift. I don't want your gift. Pretty amazing. Well, we've covered Michael Jordan tonight. We've covered all kinds of odd things. Acorns, right, Ron and Sharon? You'll never look at an oak tree the same way again. Um, the point is, God has an unbelievably high standard. And I used to think, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if you're basically a good person, like I wouldn't rape anybody or kidnap anybody or murder anybody, that's kind of the standard, isn't it? I mean, I'm not Charles Manson or Saddam Hussein or... It, the standard is absolute perfection, which is why we need Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word, and we're just scratching the surface on these six commandments, and we've only really looked at one. We pray, God, that you'd make us mindful of the fact that we are not good enough for heaven on our own. No way, no how. There's acorns all over the place, some roots, might even be a few trees we need to deal with. Thank you that by your spirit, you make us deal with them, that you help us to repent. You help us to do the good deeds. May we each this week think of nothing else but letting our light shine before men so that they see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. May you get the credit for every good thing. Bless these truths, Father. May they change the way we live. Thank you for this time. We love you. Use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's a very important part of tonight. Thanks for being here on Zoom. We'll see you next time. God bless.